Here we are, this wonderful service today. And in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I greet you all. Thank you for inviting me to come and share in this service today. It's a great honor to be here. And we heard some wonderful music earlier. We shared in that earlier with uh, Dwayne Funderbank, Funderburk, and also with the, the dear children and young people who were helping us a moment ago. And then also feeling very safe under the guardianship of uh, Pastor Walter Alexander. Thank you for your sweet introduction. Very kind of you. And referring to Her Majesty the Queen. Wow. <laughs> so, yes, Pam and I are here, and uh, it does feel like a second honeymoon, doesn't it, darling, being here today? <laughs> we do feel that very much here in California. And uh, we're with Larry Thomas, Dr. Larry Thomas. He is our mentor for this trip around California. He's our driver, and he's our bag carrier as well. <laughs> And we're very grateful to him as well. It was a thrill for Pam and me to be sharing last night. Uh, and now this morning we're going to take up this theme uh, of uh, facing the worldwide challenge of evil. I'm going to turn to the prophet Isaiah. You say Isaiah, I know. <laughs> Isaiah, chapter 59, where we had our reading. And thank you, you two dear friends, for reading for us. Focusing especially on verse 19 in the old King James Version. These words, when the enemy shall come in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord shall lift up a standard against him. Ah, oh, people all over the world love that sentence. Is it locked into your memory yet? Learn it today. Isaiah 59, and this wonderful 19th verse. The modern Bible commentator, Alec Mateer, he actually attended our wedding. Uh, he makes a convincing case for the King James Version as being better than the modern versions in this particular paragraph. He says that the word translated enemy in the King James Version is the same Hebrew word as in verse 18, just before, where the sentence is very clearly referring to the evil adversaries of God. So that's how it reads. Isaiah 59, 19, when the enemy shall come in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord shall lift up a standard against him. Against what? Against him. That's the phrase, it seems to be personal. And we must put, therefore, onto one side the shallow theories that regard evil as something impersonal, something caused by circumstance, and therefore something that rearranging the circumstances can put it right. It isn't true. In fact, traditional communists used to believe in a perfectible society a kind of workers' paradise achievable here on earth. You know, they were always going to be disillusioned. Of course they were. Christians don't think like that one little bit. We're aiming, of course, for perfection in our standards. 
100% no less. Anything less than 100%, you're backsliding. Hey, but knowing that perfection will not be achieved in this life. And we can live with that tension once we understand it. No, we have never believed that evil can be dealt with by rearranging the furniture of society. We're actually faced by an enemy. Here is Isaiah prophesying over 700 years before Jesus Christ, and his is the big picture. Sometimes, if you're in a picture gallery, you can get confused by the mass of detail and color in a painting. But then if you stand back a little bit, the picture takes on form and shape, and then you begin to see what the artist was driving at. Faith in the great God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ does that for the believer. Faced by a range of challenges, oh, we come to church, we take in from the worship and the preaching, we get our own Bible, we meet with others, in smaller groups, and little by little, we are learning to do as Isaiah did and get the big picture of God and his kingdom, his overarching rule and his work in all our restless human affairs, and to see the end from the beginning. See that, and then you're far ahead of everybody else. If we can do that, we can live with the ongoing tensions and even manage when, as Isaiah puts it, the enemy seems to come in like a flood, threatening, terrifying, and unprincipled, like the old Assyrians back in the Old Testament in his time, and the terrifying empires that would follow after. Isaiah's great prophecy is in three mighty sections. The first 39 chapters point to the catastrophe approaching God's people in Judah. Because they hadn't been faithful to the calling that was theirs of being God's light to the surrounding nations, they would be taken over by other kingdoms as a judgment upon them. Then, chapters 40 to 55, we have the golden section of Isaiah, of comfort, because there would eventually be a homecoming and a restoration. Then the third and last section, through to chapter 66, dwells on the homeland itself. And all of this pointing to an even bigger picture still, because Isaiah is pointing on beyond 8th century Judah. He's looking telescopically to the coming of Jesus in the gospel, and the restoration, the salvation that he would bring in the gospel to the world. More than that even, Isaiah transports us on further still into the far reaches of eternity to the future glory of the new heaven and the new earth, when the earth shall be filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea, as he puts it. Friends, if we can see that, we will not only survive when the enemy comes in like a flood, but we'll triumph. Because the one we trust in is king, his servant, and his conqueror. Those three inspiring images Isaiah gives to the Lord of all.
True, there certainly is an enemy to be reckoned with. Even in this part of the prophecy, following God's restoration of his people, the divine conquering incoming warrior enters the scene and he does not like what he sees. I'm looking here at verse 16. He sees, I'm quoting, that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. He's looking for intercessors. Where are they? So we read, his own arm worked salvation for him. And then verse 17 describes the Lord arming himself for the conflict with evil. The implication, sisters and brothers, is that God does it all. He's the great protagonist and fighter, but he chooses to involve you and me. Ah, we're involved. He looks even for that one person who in a given situation will be standing there in the breach when the dam that's been holding back evil gives way and great swirling waters are released upon the earth. There is an enemy coming in at times like a flood and God's people are all too aware of the waters of persecution, martyrdom, more in the last hundred years than in all the other centuries put together. The boiling whirlpools of ethnic, tribal, racial, cultural divides that engulf whole countries and the swirling currents of sectarian error and speculation gone mad that fascinate millions of people and keep them from the truth. Yes, and evil that's close at hand even, maybe just down your road, the neighbours, they're in your workplace, they're in the high echelons of society, we're all too aware of it. When evil and error are rampaging on the loose, the temptation is mentally and spiritually to give up and say, someone else can deal with all that. The enemy is so strong, it seems, and he's a person. He comes to Adam and Eve in the garden with beguiling talk, and they cave in. Rebellion and sin enter our into, into our civilization and situation, and this enemy, a fallen and rebelling angel, why, he brings other angels down with him, and the human race, in its own fallenness, colludes with and becomes part of this scene of worldwide rebellion against the Creator. And you and I are part of all that. Across the centuries, philosophers, politicians, reformers have worked in vain, trying in their own strength to change human nature. But to quote the late Bernard Levin of the London Times, those who plan to sit around until this happens to all humanity had better bring a cushion and a very long book. It's not possible by ourselves in our resources. The encouragement, however, is that evil was not present from eternity. We need to take that in. It isn't eternal as God and goodness are. If evil was eternally coexistent along with God and Jesus, 
Well, then the French writer Baudelaire might have been right when he said, if there is a God, he is the devil because of the evil. But no, Genesis, chapters 1 to 3, and the rest of the Bible cut off that blasphemous argument. Evil does not originate in eternity. It doesn't come from God at all. Evil represents a departure rather than a first cause. So that great Christian leader who lived in what today is Libya, 16 centuries ago, Augustine, he commented in his great book, the evil angels, though created good, became evil by their voluntary defection from the good. So that, Augustine says, the cause of evil is not the good, but defection from the good. And therefore, we were made not as robots, but as moral beings with the free agency to choose, to love, to obey. And if we argue that we should not have been created that way, then we're asking that the human race shouldn't exist at all, and that creation should have been limited to plants and animals. No, we were made for a relationship of love and worship. Part of that this morning, it's wonderful to hear these songs that we've been listening to and sharing in, how we worship him, we love him. But then the fall was followed by God's great rescue act, supremely in the dying love and sacrifice of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and the gift of his spirit into the lives of his people and it'll all end in the final triumph of goodness over evil and the eternal rule of God in Jesus Christ at the end of the age. And that whole apparatus of evil is going to be dismantled forever. So we're not to fall into what is sometimes called by the, the Bible teachers dualistic thinking. That is the false belief in two equal and eternal systems operating side by side, the good and the bad. Evil is not eternal, and nor is Satan. Who then is the opposite of the devil? It's not God. It's not Jesus. They're eternal. No, the opposite of Satan is another angel, the angel Michael, the great conqueror of Satan in the battle that took place spiritually while the earthly event and victory of the cross was taking place in Jerusalem. Read of that spiritual conflict in Revelation 12, where Satan was defeated by Michael, another angel, and the cross of Jesus was the reason. What is it, dear friends, about the cross of Christ, about the blood of Jesus, that ensured the defeat of evil? The answer is that it was an issue involving power. Satan's whole mindset is obsessed with power. So, during the Lord's temptation in the wilderness, remember, the offer was one of power. Jesus, you're hungry, aren't you? Look at those stones now underneath your feet. If you really are the Son of God, you surely have the power 
to turn those stones into bread. You owe it to yourself. No? Well then, Jesus, look at the whole world and all the power it could offer you. Armies and navies, banks and businesses, possessions and prestige and wealth. I could make it all yours for just one little bow to me. No? Then how about signs and wonders? Right there at Jerusalem's temple to throw yourself from the top. And the angels would be bound to catch you. You'd be all right. A power miracle. That's what you need. And that could be your way to attract any amount of recruits to your side. But Jesus is adamant. Jerusalem, we can hear him saying, I'll get to Jerusalem soon enough. But there, it'll be by the power of the cross that my kingdom will be established. Because, Satan, I didn't come to join you. I came to beat you. With Satan, it's self-grabbing and power. With Jesus, it's self-giving and love. With Satan, it's take. With Jesus, it's give. The cross shows the confrontation between two completely opposite approaches to power. With the devil, is grab. With Jesus, is grace. With the devil, it's the taking of power. With Jesus, it's the yielding of power and the shedding of blood. It's the blood that Satan cannot stand. And this then, it's this that undermines the powers of darkness, the power of the blood. It's as we witness to the victory of Calvary and as we send out missionaries and evangelists into the world with a message of the cross, it's as we learn to outface evil and resist temptation and evil by the power of the blood that the enemy of souls has no option but to give way. As Revelation 12, verse 11 puts it, they, that is the members of the weak, despised, persecuted church, they overcame him, the dragon-like devil, by the power of the blood. And there are brave men and women, I'm sure you know some, who hold on to that principle of victory, often in the face of everything that's against them. Oh, I think of when Pam and I in London met with a young mother who was a refugee from Iran. Her name is Magda. And she told us of how the religious police in Iran confronted her after her conversion to the Lord Jesus Christ and they said, you've got to renounce your, this new belief of yours. Otherwise, we will take your little girl away from you and put her in an institution. I wonder what you would have done. Magda said to these religious police, it is not possible for me to renounce my faith in Jesus Christ. So they took her little girl away. 
And Magda said to us, I pray every day for my girl, that she be held by the Lord Jesus, and that one day we shall be united again. I wanted to kneel at Magda's feet. We said to her, we'll pray too. There are people like that. They can resist the power of evil in an astounding and inspiring way because of him. It's he who gives the courage. Sure, Satan and his empire, though defeated at the cross, see, they're reluctant to admit defeat. Indeed, they're not finally destroyed yet. And the reason is clear enough. After all, if evil was wiped out at a stroke, what are the chances that you might be wiped out with it? No, the human race is still being given time to take sides. But what we see in the hatreds and violence of this present world is the empire of evil in its thrashing death throes. Again, to quote Revelation 12, the devil has come down to you in great wrath, knowing that his time is short. The church will finally stand over the grave of smoking Babylon that has plagued us all these years. And as for Satan and his allies, well, there can be only one prospect eventually, the lake of fire. Be encouraged, friends. Be encouraged today. Those who by faith belong to Christ then, are working and witnessing not towards victory, but from victory already achieved at the cross. So when, enraged by his impending destruction, the enemy comes in like a flood, we gather and fight with great confidence under the standard that the Spirit of the Lord shall lift up. What is this standard? Hey, let's get this clear. Isaiah himself gives us the answer back in chapter 11, verses 11 to 12. About the distant future, he writes, In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his place of rest will be glorious. Verse 12, he will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four quarters of the earth. Now are we getting it? The man Jesse in the Old Testament was father of King David, who headed up that messianic line that will culminate in Jesus. Here now is Isaiah predicting that someone who was the root, as he puts it, that is, the ancestor of Jesse himself would be the very standard and banner to draw people from every nation to himself. And that would prove to be Jesus. It's he then who's identified as the ancestor of the ancestors. Jesus stands so big in scripture that he's both the root, that is the origin, and the descendant, the offspring of David the son of Jesse. Again, Revelation. Chapter 22, verse 16, the glorified Jesus says, I am the root 
and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. And one of the old hymns describes Jesus as great David's greatest son. So Jesus himself is the standard, the banner, lifted up by the Spirit of God when the enemy comes in like a flood. And we gather around him in all our work and our daily witness and our corporate fight against evil in our mission to this dying world. Perhaps we ask, what actually does a standard do? Four things as we begin to close off. First, a standard is a symbol of battle. When we started following Christ, we engaged in a conflict which began from the moment of the fall onwards. As the old hymn puts it, the Son of God rides out to war, the ancient foe to slay, his blood-red banner streams afar. Who follows in his way? I hope you sing that, or if you haven't sung it for a long time, bring it back. Yes, it's the Christ who died, who is the victory, symbol, and standard before us. The battle with sin and evil. That's what a standard is. Secondly, a standard is a symbol of unity. Soldiers gather around a standard. Combatants, aware of how weak they are on their own, they'll flock to a standard that they love and recognize. Or we may come from different traditions in our Christian walk with the Lord, but in John 12, verse 32, Jesus was referring again to the cross when he said, I, when I am lifted up, will draw all men to myself. So our once crucified leader is able to draw under his banner of love men and women, girls and boys from every unlikely walk of life and every nation on earth. Oh, I've just got time maybe to share with you the story of one of my best friends. He's an evangelist called Stephen Lungo from Malawi in Africa. He wasn't always an evangelist. He was a terrorist, leader of a gang called the Black Shadows. He once told me, I stabbed so many people, I lost count. He was converted at the very meeting he'd gone to blow up with explosives on a visit to Harare, great tent with a thousand people in it. And he said to the gang, we move in when I give the signal and I want everybody in that tent destroyed. He said, we'll just wait for a moment before I give the signal. He said that was his mistake because a girl got up, an African girl from Zimbabwe to give her testimony of Jesus. He was riveted. He knew about God, but he never heard of Jesus. Then the pastor began to speak with tears pouring down his face as he urged people to surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Stephen never gave the signal. Instead, he went forward with others and went to the pastor and said to him, as he put down his bombs and his guns in front of the pastor, he said, this Jesus, what do I have to do? And the pastor said, my own story is that when I was a tiny baby, my mother didn't want me. She threw me down a pit latrine to get rid of me. But somebody rescued me. And he said, the verse therefore for my life 
in Jesus is. When my father and mother forsake me, this is Psalm 27, when my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will lift me up. So Stephen got on his knees and he cried out, lift me up, lift me up, lift me up. And he said instantly a flood of joy came over his soul. He had found Jesus. He went back to the bridge that he always slept under at night time, looking up at the stars and said, thought for the first time, they're beautiful. Woke up next morning, thought, he's still with me. Jesus is with me. He's not gone away. So he went up to a tree and he said, Jesus, can you see me? This is how much I love you. And he put his arms around the tree. Then he thought, I must tell everybody about this. Got onto a bus in Harare and said, ladies and gentlemen, I want to tell you what happened to me last night. And before he got very far, they shut him up. They said, keep preaching for Sunday. We're going to throw you off. And they threw him off the bus. Undeterred, he thought, I'll get on another bus. This time he kept his back covered as he got near to the driver and said, may I tell you something about what happened last night? And the driver said, well, well yeah, what happened? And he told him the story. Then people in the bus, he was keeping his voice up. People in the bus heard. Four men got off with him when he got off. They said, what you were saying just now, we want that. We want that. How can we, what do we do? Well, said Stephen, all I did yesterday was just I got on my knees. He said, so he said, you get on your knees in the road. So they got on their knees and he said, uh, he didn't know how to pray. He said, Jesus, um, these four men, they want what I've got. So here they are. <laughs> and you know what happened? Those four men all eventually became pastors. Stephen Lungu now is an evangelist. He can preach in seven languages. I hope one day he comes here. I play tennis with him now. What a thing. So there are surprises in our text. That the banner, under that banner, anyone can be called. Somebody who's re absolutely sunk in evil and murder and the rest of it. It can happen. You see, Jesus is the standard. A symbol of battle. A symbol of unity. Thirdly, a symbol of conquest. Originally, the cross looked like a symbol of defeat. No longer. By the standard that Christ represents, we read in the Bible that he disarmed the principalities and powers and made a public example of them. Colossians 2, verse 15. Under that banner, we've joined the winning side. A symbol of battle, of unity, of conquest. Last of all, a standard is a symbol of direction. Forward march is what the standard is saying. And if you come under the banner that is a person, you be sure that you're part of a kingdom that is advancing and will outlive all others. So don't get too daunted in the face of the evils of today. Better perhaps to search our own hearts, lest we have pockets of evil that we ourselves are accommodating Friends, that's our verse for today. Learn it by heart. Isaiah 59, 19, King James Version. 
When the enemy shall come in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord shall lift up a standard against him. Isaiah 59, 19. Let's just pray. Dear Lord Jesus, you are that banner. You are that standard. We come to you afresh, loving you, grateful to you for your work in this world and your work in our own lives. And maybe your work in somebody who's at the moment teetering on the edge of discipleship. Bring them in today to know you and love you and unite this dear fellowship day by day in your love. For your name's sake. Amen. Mm -hmm.